following sermon is brought to you by Genuine, the college ministry of Coggin Avenue Baptist Church. More information about our ministry is available at www.cogginchurch.org forward slash university. It's good to be here. If you guys tonight have your Bibles, I want you to take them, open them up to the book of Habakkuk. All right, kind of a weird name, but that's where we're where we've been the last couple of weeks. We're going to be there a few more weeks. And uh, I promise it's there in your Bible. If you need to look at the table of contents, it's not. It's a kind of a tiny little book. If you get to Nahum and some of those guys, you're, you're in the right vicinity. All right, man, everyone making it? School's going all right? You're surviving? Some of you guys have already, I've already seen tears shed uh, with school and all that kind of stuff. You'll make it. It's just like 15 more weeks, right? Like it's, it's all there is to it. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. So listen, we started this book, um, we started this book, Habakkuk, and we, we looked at some of the history um, of this book. And the subtitle of this is Trusting, Trusting God in Troubled Times. And, and so just to, to kind of back up and catch you up to speed with where we've been, all the way back in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, God promised to a guy named Abraham that he was going to turn him into a great nation and, and, and give him land, uh, this, this place called the promised land, the land, of, the land of Canaan. But the problem at that point was Abraham didn't have any kids. And Abraham began to wonder like, hey, uh, I don't know how you're going to give me a, a family that's going to number the stars if I don't have any children. To make a long story short, God did finally give Abraham children. And after a while, they found themselves in the land of Egypt. And there they became slaves of the Egyptians, but eventually God raised up Moses, brought them out of the land of Egypt. He took them to the promised land, and the Israelites went in, and they took the promised land. And, and at that point, there began to be these, these, these kings that began to rule after a period of the judges. And the first king was a guy by the name of Saul. And Saul wasn't a very good king. If you look here, the, the area in purple is kind of the kingdom that Saul conquered inside of the promised land. And after him, there became this really just awesome king named David, all right? Now, David was this incredible king, warrior, all kinds of things. He was also incredibly, incredibly flawed. And David wanted to build a temple for God, but God said, no, you can't build a temple. You're a man of blood. You're a warrior. You've, you've done all these things, so you, but your son Solomon is going to build the temple. So, so David gathered everything for Solomon, and the area there that's outlined in red became the kingdom that Saul conquered. And Saul ruled and reigns this kingdom for a while, and it, this is the pinnacle of Israel's history, all right? Um, gold is like sand during this time. Everyone is coming to Solomon to, to hear his wisdom. He builds the temple. God's presence resides there. Things are going well. Well, after Solomon dies, things go south pretty quick. His son, Jeroboam, begins to rule, and Jeroboam does not really walk in the way of his father Solomon. He's kind of a fool, and the nation of Israel immediately splits into two tribes. In the northern tribe, you had the nation called Israel, and the, the, the capital was Samaria, and in the southern kingdom, 10 of the 12 tribes remained. It was the tribe of Judah. Now, the northern kingdom, it gets wiped off the map pretty quick. Assyria comes down. There's two great um, two great exiles out of the nation of Israel. The first one there in the green, Assyria comes down, removes the northern kingdom out about, um, about 722. And then about 586, uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, gets taken out. Now, the last four kings 
in the line of Judah there in the southern kingdom, uh, three of the four are horrible, all right, or horrible. There's a really good king uh, that, that rises up. He's set on the throne at the age of eight. His name's Josiah. He rules for about 40 years, but after Josiah dies, his son, Jehoiachin, uh, becomes the king through some things, and he does not walk in the way of his father. He's foolish. He invites all kind of idolatry back into Israel. And Habakkuk writes during the time of Jehoiachin's rule. Okay, Jeremiah, if you go and read the prophet Jeremiah, he's writing at the same time that Habakkuk is writing. And they're talking about all these kind of crazy things that they're seeing inside the nation of Israel. So if you were here two weeks ago, we kind of looked at the opening of uh, the opening of this book, session one. And the problem that we see here is Habakkuk sees the way things are going. He doesn't like the way God's running things. You ever been there? Like things are going on inside of your life and you begin to think, I just really don't like the way the Lord is letting this, this thing go. All right, so Habakkuk has this lament and prayer that he kind of vents his complaint before the Lord. Like how long are you going to let this stuff go on? God, don't you see what's happening? God, aren't you going to intervene? And if we learn anything from that first one, it's this is that um, silence in your faith can do a great deal of damage to your faith, right? Like when we have doubts and questions and things aren't going right, if you're not careful, you walk into church and you think what you have to do is like pick up the churchy lingo and just like shut up and sing the songs. But if we learn anything from Habakkuk, it's this, listen, God sweeping doubts and questions and frustrations under the rug, it's not, it doesn't help you grow. That, that's not going to help you grow. Rather, God delights God delights when we honestly come before him to lament and ask our questions. So this is what Habakkuk does, man. He, he prays and he asks God, all right, are you going to do something about this, about what we see? So last week, Zach kind of unpacked and helped us see. God says, yeah, man, don't, don't take my silence. Don't mistake God's silence for distance or indifference when it comes to sin. Now listen, there's like an entire sermon in there that we need to unpack, but we don't have time tonight because I've got like four more sermons we need to get to in this passage. But, but never mistake God's silence about your sin as distance or indifference towards it. All right, that, that wasn't what was happening. So God looks and he tells Habakkuk, no, 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 I see what's going on and don't worry, I'm going to handle it. I'm bringing the Babylonians down and they're going to wipe everyone out and take the entire nation of Israel into exile. And so Habakkuk at that point, man, he starts, he starts kind of backing up. He's like, whoa, 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 like, like those guys? Like the Babylonians? So where we pick up tonight, where we pick up tonight, is Habakkuk's like response back to God when he finds out that that's going to, to happen. We see his confusion, his second response to the Lord. Um, and so that's where we're picking up tonight inside of verse 12. But let me tell you what we're going to try. That kind of catches you up speed. Let me tell you what we're going to try to do tonight. Um, and what I want to try to do tonight is, is kind of acknowledge that on, on the road to maturity and faith, okay, you and I are going to come across situations that radically confuse us, right? I'm going to be referring that tonight as kind of like the fog of confusion. Have you ever been there? Like stuff is going on in your life. You, you continue to look around, and, and the, the confusion is there. What you know about God, but what you see happening inside of your life simply does not seem to match up. And you are, you are just outright confused. Now, at this point, there's a lot of things that can happen. So what I want to do tonight is, is honestly, I, I kind of want to tear down our vision of, 
of who we are a little, because honestly, what we need here tonight is not a grander vision of who we are, but a greater vision of who God is. That's what you need. To, that's what I need tonight. I don't need, to, I don't need a bigger version or a better kind of vision of who I am and what I can do and my endless potential. I don't need that. I need that to be removed so I get a vision of God and who he is that is so big and so magnificent and so trustworthy that can elicit this hope inside of me that is rooted in the person and work of Jesus. That's what you and I need, okay? So, so, in order to do that, what I want to do is kind of set up, um, set up some lighthouses. Um, so when I, was out in, uh, when I lived out in Portland, there were these lighthouses that were all over the place. Now, here's the beautiful thing about lighthouses. When ships get into fog and they can't see where they're going and they can't see the dangers, the lighthouses are there to help them maneuver through the danger and the confusion that the fog causes that ship. Without lighthouses, all right, when before we had those, ships were constantly running aground, running into the rocks. Now listen, here's what I want to say. In the ship of your the ship of your faith, okay, when you get into these seasons of this fog of confusion, we just feel like, man, I don't know where the Lord is. I don't know what the Lord's doing. I don't know, I don't know up from down right now. I, I want to I set up three lighthouses for you, okay? Three lighthouses, things for you and I to come back to and to say, okay, these three things are, are true, and as long as I, I keep focused on these three things, the, the ship of my faith is going to be able to navigate through some of this rockiness. Are you tracking with me? Because you're going to get there. If you've never been there, you will be there. Okay, those, those days are coming and God has not left you to just wander out there by your own. He has set up these lighthouses in the fog of confusion that you and I sometimes feel in the midst of chaos to help navigate the ship of our faith through it. So we get to the other side of it. And this is happening with Habakkuk. This is happening with Habakkuk. All right. So let's dive in. Verse, um, verse 12. Let's read this. We're going to kind of read through um, all the way to about chapter 2, verse 1 tonight is, is the only place we're going to be on. Read, unpack some of this, and then I want to give you three things, three things tonight. Let me pray, and then we're going to jump into this, okay? Pray with me. Lord, I'm, I'm so thankful for your word. Um, Dad, as I was studying this week and, and looking at this passage and Lord, I know there are seasons. I have friends right now, right now, who are in these seasons. Just this weekend, things that happen with a friend of ours, a lot of confusion. Lord, and, and a lot of times in, in the sadness, in the suffering, in the grief, in the confusion of chaos, Lord, we're so drawn to think things we shouldn't think, to, to argue into this unknown space. And uh, so, God, I thank you for your word, that it can kind of help orient us. It can, it can set up these lighthouses about reality that can, that can help us navigate this fog of confusion that sometimes we find ourselves in the midst of the chaos. So, what I know that there may be some students there tonight. There's things going on inside of their families. There's things going on inside of their relationships. Um, for some of them, Lord, there's things going on inside of their health or the health of loved ones that they they know where they have. Man, God, they're there right now. And Lord, I know for, for all of us at some point, 
in, in the road to maturity in our faith, we're going to find ourselves in these seasons. And Lord, I pray that when that happens, that Spirit, even tonight, um, whether that's next year or 10 years from now, that you would bring some of these reminders tonight back up in our hearts as you, as you build. This is another brick in the wall of our faith that, that you're building up this evening. So, Lord, help me teach this well. Help me stay on track and not, not um, and just explain these things in a way that, that is encouraging to us here tonight and just awakens um, for some of us in here, would awaken a hope in you that maybe we haven't felt in a really long time. And, and for all of us in here, it would drive further in our faith, Lord, just a deep-rooted trust in you and, and who you are. Lord, I love you. I thank you for this time together, and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Habakkuk says, God, what are you doing? Are you, are you watching? God's like, I'm watching. I'm bringing the Babylonians. So here's, here's Habakkuk's first response here in 12. He says this. He says this. Are you not from everlasting? Oh, Lord, my God, my, my Holy One, we, we shall not die. Now, Habakkuk immediately does two things. He orients himself into two truths. The first one is this, that God is everlasting and that God is holy. And because God is everlasting and because God is holy, Habakkuk knows that God is going to keep his word. And so he says here with confidence, we won't surely die. I don't understand what God is doing but the nation of Israel is going to survive because Habakkuk is reaching back to all the promises that God has given. This ultimately will not turn out for the destruction of God's people. So Habakkuk immediately orients himself to that truth before he proceeds any further, okay? God is everlasting. God is holy. He keeps his word. The nation of Israel isn't going to be wiped off the map, okay? But he goes on and he says this, at the end of verse 12, all right? So here, protest and faith live right next to one another, okay? Protest and faith. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. You've ordained the Babylonians as judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why? Why, why do you idly look as traitors, look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Now, here's what I love about Habakkuk. At this point inside of this, faith, okay, God, you've established this. This is going to happen as, as reproof, as discipline for your people. There, there's faith there, and then there's this protest. But Lord, they're worse than we are. Like, why would you use the, the, the more wicked people to swallow up, to swallow up us? He, he's trying to understand why these guys, right? Like, why would you do it this way? Why would you allow, this is the why question, all right? That when you're in the midst of that fog of confusion, that chaos, you ask the Lord why. And God doesn't reprove him for asking why, all right? God, God's not angry with the why with the why question here. But Habakkuk is saying, listen, if God is, God is pu too pure to look indifferently on evil, and if God can't tolerate wrong, then, then why would you let these guys swallow up? Now, now, a couple of things here, okay, that, that we see happening. One is this. Um, it's never good to start playing the comparison game in your wickedness, right? Does anyone pick up what's happening there? He's like, okay, like, I know we're bad, but they're really bad. You know, it's like the, 
It's like the cocaine dealer that's like, well, I'm not as bad as most dealers because I only sell to those that have money to buy it. You know, it's like, so you need to get the ones that don't. Never mind. All right, maybe I shouldn't have used that illustration. But we've kind of been using this blame game since the garden, right? Well, I know I screwed up, Lord, but that woman, well, I know I messed up, but it was that snake. Like, we get into this blame game. Like, Habakkuk's kind of painted himself into a corner, right? Like, God, you need to do something about wickedness. God's like, okay, I'm bringing the Babylon. Whoa, not that wickedness. Do something about that wickedness. Like, he starts playing this comparison game and this blame game. That never goes well, okay, when we start blaming and, and comparing levels of wickedness. But the other thing that I want you to see here is Habakkuk's faith, listen to me, it's not weak faith. Habakkuk's faith questioning is not always indicative of weak faith. Habakkuk's faith here is not weak. It's just perplexed. He just doesn't understand. These are not questions of doubt. They're questions, questions that are honestly coming out of a deep faith, a faith that is seeking understanding. And God, God, invites, God, in, God invites that, okay? So here's what he knows about the Babylonians. He's going to unpack some of their wickedness. Okay, look at verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And he, that's the Babylonians, brings all of them up with a hook and he drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he, he sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and merciless, mercilessly killing nations forever. So here Habakkuk just unpacks things he knows about the Babylonians. They are brutal, all right? If you go and just do a a Google images search on the cruelty of the Babylonians, it will pull up all kind of stone epitaphs of the things that the Babylonians used to do. They would skin rulers alive in front of their cities, in front of their their, their people. When they would conquer, they would behead, They they would pluck out eyes, they would put hooks in the mouths of the captives to lead them off to, to places. They would drag, the, 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 the cruelty of the Babylonians was known throughout the entire ancient Near East, okay? Everyone knew about their brutality, but not only are they brutal, but they, they take pleasure in their brutality, right? They actually rejoice in the brutality and the things that they do and that people fear them. And because of that, they worship their might and their power, Because they're so strong, and they're so strategic, and they're so brutal, and everyone fears them so much, because of that, they conquer nations, and they eat the best. And and, and he says here, it looks like their wickedness actually seems to pay off, right? Like they eat the best of foods, they live in luxury, and they are unstoppable from Habakkuk's perspective. Perspective. Will they be allowed to do this forever? So Habakkuk here in chapter 2, verse 1. He says he goes to the watchtower, he sets up, and he looks out and he says, I will wait for a response from the Lord. Like, like he's laid it all out there and now he's going to wait. Now there's a few things here, three, three things here very quickly I want you to see that Habakkuk, that Habakkuk does. Three truths, okay? Three truths. Um, let me get through all of those. Here's, here's the first one. Three lights in the fog of confusion. Here's the first one. God is not limited in time like you and I are. You have to remember that. God is not limited in time like you and I are. All right, so here's how the Bible talks about 
here's how the Bible talks about you and me, okay? Look here at Psalm 39, uh, 4 through 5. It says this, O Lord, this is a Psalm of David when he's writing to the Lord. He says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And then this word, selah, all right, that we don't know exactly what that word selah means, but they think it's a, it's a musical term that they would throw inside of these psalms that means pause and think about what you just heard. So David, the author here of Psalm 39 says, um, he's asking God to help him understand how short his life really is. That in in, in the scope of history and eternity, that David's life is but just a blip on the screen, two milliseconds of life. Compared to God, the days of his life, David's like, listen, Compared to you, God, the days of my life don't even measure on a scale. It's like a mountain on one side of the scale and one little grain of sand tipping the other. He's like, Lord, help me understand. Help me understand this. Help me, help me ponder how, how short and fleeting my life is so, so that I can walk in wisdom. It goes on in Psalm 103, 15 through 16. The psalmist writes, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place remembers it no more. So he says, listen, our life is like a flower in this place that springs up, the wind blows over it, it goes, and not even the place where the flower was planted remembers it. All right, let let me prove this to you. How many of you know the name and the life of your great-great-grandfather? Not a single hand in this room. Like, I could, I could flip up and show you a picture of your great-great-grandfather right now and say, do you know who this is? And almost every person in this room would say, nah, bro, I don't know who that is. I'm like, bro, that's family. Like, that's bloodline right there. This is your great-great-grandfather. How many of you, we might get a few in here, how many of you know the name and the history of your great-grandfather? Okay, there's like five of you, six of you. Okay, we're getting, we're getting better. Again, for most of us in this room, your great-grandfather, which is just two generations past from you, I could hold up a picture and say, who is this guy? And you would say, I don't know, I'm bro, bloodline. Like this is your great-grandpa right here. Listen, that is you and me in two or three generations. Most of our families will not even know and remember who we are. Now listen, if that is true, if, if that's true, um, if that's true, then, all right, then what kind of, where's my question? Because I've totally jumped down off of this. Um, if that's true, then answer me this. What, what kind of position of authority are you and I in to argue with God about how he governs the universe? Right? Okay, because we, we're like grass that fades, but, but look at what it says here about God, that God is, unlike grass that fades, God is eternal. Let me tell you what I mean by that. That God never had a beginning, and God will never have an end. Right now, for my daughter, this is just like blowing her mind. She's like, but who created God? And I'm like, no one. Like, God just is. He just, God is 
is. He has no beginning. He has no end. There never was a time when he was not, and there will never be a time when he ceases to be. Like, time was created by God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, in the beginning, God. Well, what was the beginning? God was already there. Like in eternity past, God existed and was present. He is already in eternity future. If you want your mind to absolutely just be be blown, ponder this. God exists in the past, present, and the future all at the same time right now. Think about that. Like at the time when creation was being formed, God was already there where Abraham was giving him instructions at the same time was already there where Jesus was at the same time was already right here present in this room and at the same time is already at the return of Jesus because time is something he created and he stands outside of it and sees all of it. Mind blown. It's like, it's like wanting to watch the Macy's Day Parade down in, in New York, and you and I are on ground level watching, like, oh, there goes Dora the Explorer, or whoever it is now that, that's going on the Macy's Day Parade. And God is up at the very top of the Empire State Building looking down and seeing everything. He sees everything. God is not limited in time the way that you and I are. He stands outside of it. And if this is true, then here's my question. How are you and I going to argue with him from any position of authority about how he is to govern the world? Like you have to admit, if that is true, you and I are limited, right? Like this is why I don't ask my five-year-old for marriage advice, right? Like, honey, bro, listen, your mom's upset. What should I do? I know, Dad, fruit snacks. Because right now, everything's fruit snacks. Like, he gets a boo-boo. What do you need? Fruit snacks, Dad. All right, man, I'm tired. What do you need? Fruit snacks, Dad. I'm hungry. Wait, wait, your mom's upset. What should I do? I know, Dad, fruit snacks. That's why I don't have this conversation with him, right? Like, the time that he has been on the earth, how ridiculous would it be for me to try to figure out what I'm doing, to go to my five-year-old and ask for advice, and at the same time, how ridiculous does it look for my five-year-old to look up at me and tell me what I need to do in his blip of time that he's been on the earth. Does this make sense? Are you tracking with me? Do you realize how small we are and how big God is? This is a lighthouse planted in the fog of confusion for you when you say, I don't understand what's going on, but I'm limited in the two milliseconds that I'm here. And God is not. He is eternal. He stands outside of time. He knows all things. And that's the second thing. Here's the second lighthouse. Not only, um, let me get through all those because I don't have time to hit all these. Second one is this. God is not limited in understanding like we are. He is not limited in time, nor is he limited in understanding like you and I are. Um, uh, Isaiah chapter 40, uh, 46. I want, you to, I want you to, if you have your Bibles, flip there, because there's, I've tried to put these on the screen so we could get through a, mo- a lot of them. But Isaiah chapter um, 46 is, if you're memorizing scripture, I, I highly encourage you to memorize this entire chapter, but at least um, at least verses 8 through, 8 through 11 would be awesome to memorize. Look at what he says here in verse 8 through 11, then it's going to be up on, some of this will be, when we pick up 9, will be up on the screen. Remember this and stand firm. 
Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. I say that my counsel will stand, and I will accomplish all of my purposes. I call a bird of prey, From the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Here's one of the things that God says inside the book of Isaiah. One of the prerequisites for being God is knowing that you're God and having the authority and power to do whatever you want. If you don't know you're God and you don't have the authority and power to do whatever you want, you're not God. And this is why God says, who's like me? Like these idols that that people have cast overlaid with gold that they have to pick up and carry around like baby Yoda walk into places, you know? Like like what what is that? He says, listen, listen, I I know everything and and I I know things that aren't even yet to come. This is what's crazy. When God's having this conversation with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 about his lineage, it's like casual conversation in Genesis chapter 15. God's like, okay, you're going to have kids, okay. And then, and then here, here in a while, about 100 years, they're going to go down to Egypt. They're going to spend 400 years down there, okay. And then they're going to come out of there. And then they're going to, it's just like this fleeting thing that God speaks as though he's already 400 years from now. And he knows how every piece of this puzzle fits together. Do you realize that God knows how one event a thousand years ago folded into another event that folds into another event ad infinitum down through the hallways of eternity? He sees how it all fits together. He's not limited in his understanding. Listen, how many times have you or I thought we knew what was best and then did it and immediately thought, oops, like I shouldn't have done that. Like, don't push the button, and I push the button because I thought this was, like, how many times have we, how many times have we done this? How many times, as men, do we think we know what's best, and then we do it, and immediately the thing that we thought was best is actually working against us? Because we couldn't see what was happening when we did that thing, or made that choice, or made that decision. That has never happened to God, because he knows Like, he knows everything. He knows how all these events, because he's not limited in his, he's not limited in his understanding. If you want another passage of this, go to Job chapter 38. Like, Job's question God, and God finally shows up to Job, and he says, all right, um, he says this, dress like a man, and we'll have this conversation. Now, if God ever shows up, and his first thing is, hey, dress like a man so we can have this kind of, put your cup on, all right? That's not, this is not going to go well for you. So Job, for the entire chapter of Job 38, just begins to waylay him. Job, where, do you, do you know where the deers are giving birth right now? The deers, deer, plural, moose in the woods in. All right, do you, do you know where, do you know where the deer are giving birth right Hey, Job, do you know where I store snow? Hey, Job, tell me this. How did I get Orion's belt just like that? Do you know what the stars of Pleiades are named right now and what temperature they're burning out. Job, tell me this. Do you know how earth seems to hang on nothing and just suspend? 
spend itself there. Job, do you call the sun in the morning to rise? And do you tell the sun when to set? No, Job, you wanted to have this conversation. Tell me about your understanding. And then he just begins to dress the understanding of Job down to the point where Job just puts his hands over his mouth and says, I spoke as one who had no understanding. I have spoken thus far. I will say no more. And he puts his hand over his mouth, and Job at that point just stops speaking. Like, we just can't simply see or know everything at play, but God is in every place at every time. His knowledge is endless, and his wisdom knows no bounds. So Paul, in Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11 says, says this, Oh, the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given a gift to God that, God might, that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Listen, since this is true, again, how are you and I going to argue from any position of authority about how God is running his universe? I can drive it home this way. It's like watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? All right, track with me here. This is going somewhere. Like the extended version. I have all three of them. Love them. Uh, my wife and I, every year, I'm geeking out on this, all right? I'm going to blow your minds here in a second. All right, but, but let's say we decide, hey, we're going to watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy extended version, and we're going to have a test. I'm going to sit there, and several times I'm going to watch all three extended versions of the Lord of the Rings to all 12 glorious hours of what happens in Lord of the Rings, all right? I'm going to watch it all. I'm going to study it. I'm going to memorize it. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand it over to you. And you get to watch one second of Lord of the Rings. You turn it on. I turn it off. All right. Now let's have a conversation about who the villains are, who the heroes are, the nature of the ring, why Gandalf throws himself all of a bridge. Gandalf, all right, go watch it, okay? Let's have that conversation now. Now, at that point, who is better equipped to, to have those conversations and to pass that exam? I am, not you. We can flip it around. You watch it, I don't. You are, not me, all right, if it makes you feel better. But here, here's, here's, here's what I'm saying. If we're not careful, most of the time we are so unaware of these limitations in our life. We're not just... I mean, how many times, even with these limitations, do we think, like we, we know, when the reality is, listen to me, the reality is, like, we've played with water in the kitchen sink while God has plumbed the depths of the ocean and had the waves carves out, carve out continents, but we want to tell him what water does and what it should do. I mean, how ridiculous is that? And so many times we are so just even unaware of the limitations that we have, that we are so limited in time and scope and understanding and power and authority, but we serve one who isn't. We serve one who isn't. So, so then, all right, here we go. Last point. You guys okay? Track with me here. All right, last thing. Last lighthouse. God is not limited in time like we are. God is not limited in understanding like we are. And God is good and is working all things for good. 
Very quickly in your Bibles, flip over to Genesis chapter 45. I want you to see this and then I'll land this plane. All right. If you know the story of Joseph, Joseph um, is part of the family of Abraham. He's down the line of Abraham. He's Abraham's great, great, great grandson. Joseph starts to have these dreams, but he uh, he starts telling his brothers his brothers these dreams, and it creates all of this like horrible family conflict because his dreams are like, "Hey, you know, you guys are going to worship me," and that just never goes well in a family dynamic. Um, when when your your brother starts telling you to worship him, long series of events. You can go back and read it, starting in about chapter chapter thirty eight. Joseph's brothers want to kill him, but eventually sell him into slavery. A guy by the name of Potiphar buys him, and Joseph works inside of Potiphar's house and does such an amazing job because the Lord is with him that Potiphar sets him over everything inside of his house. But Potiphar's wife tries to rape Joseph, and when Joseph won't sleep with her. She accuses Joseph of raping her. And Joseph, even though he didn't do anything wrong, gets thrown into a prison cell where he gets locked up. And again, in the prison cell, he, the Lord's favor is on him even inside of the prison cell. And he gets exalted to, to essentially chief over all of the prisoners. And there he interprets the dreams of two servants of the Pharaoh. And the only thing he asks of them is, hey, when you go back to see the Pharaoh, just remember me. So one of them is murdered, uh, his head's taken off of him, uh, the, the cupbearer, like Joseph interpreted in his dream, but the, the wine, the cupbearer goes back to Pharaoh, and then he totally forgets about Joseph for two years. So for two more years, Joseph rotting in a prison cell. And then the Pharaoh has a dream, and the cupbearer just miraculously remembers, hey, there's this dude in the jail, he can interpret dreams. So the Pharaoh's like, pick him up, all right? So they go in and they get Joseph and they clean him up and he comes in and Joseph interprets the Pharaoh's dream and Joseph says, you need to put a, a really smart man over this because there's seven years of, of good coming with lots of crops and then seven years of famine and you need to store up food so everyone doesn't die in seven years. And Pharaoh's like, that's a great idea. You take it. And Joseph goes from Alcatraz to second in command of the largest nation and kingdom in all of the world. At that, at that, in the known world at that time, and begins to work things out. Well, eventually, his brothers come walking up because the famine's hit now, and the famine's hit Canaan, the promised land where his brothers are, and they come strolling in. They're like, hey, we need some food, and Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. So he toys with them. He plays some games with them to see if their hearts have really changed, and in Genesis chapter 45, Joseph reveals to his brothers that it's him. And it's this like dun 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 moment. All right, and the brothers are like, what? And everyone's like crying and hugging. And, and Joseph says this. Look here in Genesis chapter 45. Um, uh, Genesis chapter 45, starting in verse 5. Or 4. Let's start in 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now. Now, listen, if these were your brothers, what would you do? Like, it's on, you know? Like, you sold me, some stuff's coming back on you, okay? Like, we're going we're gonna to even out this, the scales of justice here, okay? That's not what Joseph does. Look what he says here. And, and why Joseph says this. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. 
For the famine has been in the land two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Verse 7, and God me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. For he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. Here's what Joseph's saying. God did this. Like God was sovereign over this through you selling me into slavery, through false accusation, through prison, and now my appointment. God has made me the prince of Egypt. God has put me here to fulfill promises that he made to Abraham. And because God put Joseph in that place where Joseph was, listen to me, the promise of God continued through the line of Abraham and eventually the David was born and eventually from the line of David, Jesus was born. Now track with me here. And because of that, you and I are saved because God sent Joseph through false accusation, slavery, and imprisonment. And because God did that, you and I are sitting in this room. Are you tracking with that? Like God knew then when that was happening that one of the results of that would be you and me sitting in this room right now with our faith and hope squarely rooted in the person and work of Jesus because the line of Jesus goes all the way back to David that goes back to, to, the, to, to Abraham, all right, that's preserved there in the life of Joseph. And he says God was using all of these things that we would look at and say, man, just this, God was even using the sin committed against me for his good purposes, the good of his people and the glory of his name. This is where you and I can rest. Now listen to me. God never takes delight or finds joy in the sin done against us. Let me be very clear. I'm not saying that God delights and finds joy if someone sells you into slavery. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. God takes delight and finds joy in knowing that he is sovereign even over the sin done to us and others and can take what is meant for evil and he can turn it for good. He's sovereign over that. He's in control of it. If you would have been Joseph right after he got sold into slavery by his brothers into Potiphar's house and you would have asked him, Joseph, like, why'd this happen? He probably would have been like, I don't know. I don't know. But at the end of his life, looking back, he says, God did this. God sent me here to preserve life, to work good. This is the third pillar in the fog of confusion that I want to anchor myself to, that, that God is not limited in time, God is not limited in understanding, and God is always working for His, for the good of His people and the glory of His name. The glory of His name. The fog of confusion. These truths, God sees, God knows, and God works all things for good. 
are lighthouses that get the ship of your faith through some of this fog of confusion that you're working in. Always work from what you know into what you don't know. It is incredibly dangerous when you start working from what you don't know and try to argue back in then to what you should know. That will shipwreck your faith faster than anything. We cling to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I want to close with this. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And my hope for tonight, um, my hope for tonight has been this. And for the believer in here, my hope has been that, that these things, as they anchor you, just that your, your trust in yourself diminishes and your trust in God grows, even in the bad things. Listen to me, some of you are walking through really horrible things right now. I have a friend this weekend who lost her husband. 25 years old, a four-month-old baby, Ella Grace. She will never know her dad. When I talk with my friend Matt, his father-in-law, is, is, is in that fog of confusion, are there lighthouses? Man, I don't know why. I don't know what God's doing, but I know these things. He's not limited in time. He's not limited in understanding. He's working things for good. He has not left me. He has not forsaken me. That my faith and my trust in him can be rooted. It can be rooted here. And even if I don't get the clarity and the understanding I want on this side of eternity, Death here is a comma, not a period, and there's more to come, and I will see Jesus face to face and get to have some of these conversations with him or see what he's done. through. Because there are things going on in my life that are going to affect 150, 200 years from now that I'll never know and I'll never see. So for the believer in here, man, to root you in that. And for, for someone in here that, that doesn't know Christ, here's what I, I hope this Here's what I hope this does for you. It helps you see that you cannot fix what is wrong with you. That you, we are so limited in our potential. We don't know the things we need. We, we can't even do the things that we need to do, that we need a Savior, and there is a God that loves to save so the cry of the church. Man, I love the songs we've been singing. I love the songs we've been singing. Tonight we sing that song, and you're the potter, I'm the clay. You're working all things for your glory. And man, for the church, because we believe that, if you're an apprentice of Jesus in here, because we believe that, you have more reason than anyone to hope. And with the midst of your sorrow, to know that joy can be mingled with it. 
and in the confusion of chaos and the fog of chaos, that there are lighthouses that can help move the ship of your faith so it's not made shipwreck of. What a great God we serve, right? He's good. He's good. I'm going to pray. We're going to be dismissed, all right, because I've gone, I've gone long tonight. All right, so let me pray, and then I'll, you guys can get out of here. Lord, thank you for these truths. I pray that they will go down deep in our hearts and in our lives, and I know I need them to go down deep into my life. And uh, Lord, I, I thank you that although my knowledge is so limited and my understanding and my power is so limited, that God, I serve you and your knowledge and power and wisdom is unsearchable. It is infinite. There is no beginning or end to it just as there is no beginning or end to you. And so God, I just want to humble, I want to be humble before you and, and, and I want to find in the midst of, of suffering or grief or confusion or chaos, I want to find that my hope is rooted there because my hope isn't in me. My hope is not that I will be smart enough to work my way out of this or that I'll be able to get enough power. My hope is that in the midst of those things, you hold me and you know and that you are working all things for your glory and the good of your people. And I want that truth to be just rooted in us that we serve a sovereign God who is Lord over all things. Just like in the case of Joseph, even the hard things and the sin committed against us, you can take and leverage and work for the good of your people and the glory of your name. I'm so thankful we serve a God like that. I'm so thankful that you love us. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I love you guys. I'll catch you next week, okay?